Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. That's right. Time for another episode of the Morning Show podcast. Hello there. I'm Larry Emder. And I'm Kylie Gillies. Another massive episode ahead, including the tough-talking chief instructor on SAS Australia, Ant Middleton, is live from Hotel Quarantine, giving us a glimpse of the gruelling challenges that lay ahead for our next round of superstar recruits. Then uh, we know her best from McLeod's Daughters, but Bridie Carter has made a return to Summer Bay. She opens up about her new role on Home and Away. Plus, fertility specialist Dr Joseph Scroy explains why sperm counts could reach zero by the year 2045. Mm, lots to talk about there. And he was one of the most talked about residents of Melrose Place. We found out why 90 star Andrew Shu made the move from actor to activist. You know him as Billy on Melrose Place. Oh, yeah. But first, gardening guru Jamie Jury is gearing up for his shot at redemption on Dancing with the Stars. Yeah, he joins us to chat about his game plan for taking home the coveted Mirrorball trophy, proposing to his partner and his new mission to save the planet. He has graced our screens for over a decade, from getting down and dirty with Oprah Whoa, <laughs> what a rare to, to judging Australia's top designers. Jamie Jury has done it all. Now the TV host is hanging up his gardening gloves and trading the great outdoors for the dance floor. Hello. Down and dirty with Oprah. But uh, before he takes centre stage, the 50-year-old father is getting back to his sustainable roots. We welcome Jamie Jury back to the show. Hello, Hello. Jamie. It's so Hi, nice guys. to see you. Now, look, today marks World Water Day. Yeah. Hello. I know. We're surrounded by the stuff, right? And and what a day it is. I mean, have we, we haven't had rain like this for 50 years. Mm. But I think what everyone needs to keep remembering is that the rain isn't falling all the way across Australia. Mm. And for the majority of our year, and for the last 40 years, we've been in drought. And only 55% of Australia's dams are actually at. at so Australia's dams altogether are at 55% mm. capacity. We still have 45% to go. So officially, we still are in drought. Mm. I know it's hard to believe when you see all this rain here, mm. but Sydney's at up 98%, and that's mm. as of today. But the rest of Australia, mm. Mm. They're, they're still not at capacity. So it's still very much a critical situation. It is critical. We still are in a water crisis. Yeah. And what this is about, it's about ensuring water security for our children and our children's children. You know, how do we save more water moving forward and how do we get smarter about it? Um, and so, you know, even, even having a dual flush toilet can save as much as, and it has, and Coroma developed this, I think, in 1980. Mm. Uh, we've saved as much water that sits in Sydney Harbour every single year just through dual flush toilets. We've got a tips page here, some water saving tips yeah. uh, that you've got some, you know, some other ideas for us that yeah. we can use. The half flush you just spoke about. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's five 
thousand gig. That's five gigalitres. Five thousand mm. gigalitres. It's okay. a lot of a lot of water in Sydney Harbour. Mm. Um, you know, you don't necessarily need full loads of washing. You really only need to 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 take four minute showers. Uh, if you change your tap to a Wells rated tap, th so traditional taps mm. use about sixteen litres per minute. Mm. These taps use only six litres per minute. So you're saving. 10 litres right. per minute just by changing out your taps mm -hmm. and you don't even feel the difference and they look amazing you know so we actually mm -hmm. followed the the story of this family um, you know just here in Sydney yeah. and we changed all their taps we put covers over their pool you know that uh, enough water evaporates out of your pool just through not having a cover it, to fill your entire pool all over again each year. Wow. Okay, so wow, some simple yeah. but effective things that yeah. really make a big difference yeah. when you add it all up. Yeah. Now, moving on, a little birdie called Instagram told us <laughs> that you recently got engaged. Congratulations. I How did. Exciting. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I'm very, very excited. Tell us all about it. She's amazing. Uh, Amika's, um, uh, we met a few years ago and she's a singer-songwriter and um, she's moved over here to There's Me Proposing. Um, oh, look that, at you go that's, with you. That's my little um, floral display that's saying "Marry me." I know it looks a little bit dyslexic, but it's I, I you know, it's, <laughs> it's 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 the thought that counts, isn't it? I think I'm more concerned about the astro too. Is that astro too? <laughs> yeah. it? it is. Yeah, it oh, is. Oh, we've got the, We've got a. We have. We've got some I, good stuff I here. I know. Here's, I designed her a little ring using argyle diamonds because that's that's the brown diamonds where I grew up in in northwestern yeah. Australia, oh. uh, and she's got beautiful green eyes, so they're the green sapphires. Oh, stop it! <laughs> <laughs> How did you like? Did she was she in the house and wandered into the backyard to dis, to discover your no, floral tribute? No, I had to. I actually had to lure her out. Right. I said, uh, I said, darling, a, 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 a mate of mine and his partner they want to do a double date for Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. Do you want to join us? And she's like, well, that's a bit weird. Don't you want to just have a? I said, no, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. I'll pick you up in five minutes. Mm -hmm. She got dressed up. Mm -hmm. Off we go. Bang, we landed on the knee. It was all done. Oh, <laughs> Make it sound so clinical. Bang, landed knee, gone, done. <laughs> I had to get it all done by sunset. Yeah, you know, yeah. there was, I was just searching for that Great. moment. Yeah, it was lovely. really good. It uh, was kind of like doing a garden reveal. You know, you've just got to get that natural yeah, yeah, light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Now, we're going to talk Dancing with the Stars. How exciting. You're, I know. You're on the cusp. How many years? 14 years? I know it's, it, it was four. I, I can't believe someone talked me back into this, but I got to say <laughs> I'm having a ball. Mm -hmm. And Laz, I've lost six kilos. Six kilos in five weeks. From Tell, dancing. From dancing. Yeah, hang yeah. on. You're, you've been not only have you been dancing. This, this is the first time round. That's my first time round. Yeah, that's me. 14 years ago. Fantastic. There you go. That. And I'm exactly the same weight today. Well, wow. because of been, dancing. But yeah. you've been hitting it hard. So not only have you been dance training, but I bumped into you the other day and you just you were cycling, you were spinning around. I know. Like I, well, I love my spin classes, yeah. so I do that in the morning. There's there's my lovely partner, Siobhan, mm. and uh, us dancing. Uh-oh, there's oh, me doing this. <laughs> <laughs> That's me doing my spin in every morning. Well, so no, I do that. you lost six kilos. Yeah, I, well, I do that every morning. You're watching the morning show? It looks like you're watching the morning show. I, I always watch you guys <laughs> I, I, every morning. So you place fourth? Are you aiming for at least one better this time? Well, let's hope so. I mean, look, the judges were tough on me last time. They called me circus boy. Oh, I don't yeah. appreciate that, Les. I'm just trying to, like, like you, I'm just trying to be an entertainer, You're right? Correct. I know the feeling. And, and, you know, and they come back with these circus comments. I know, oh, mate. I just I, can't wait. But you know what? With all of us semi-professional dancers, you never lose it, mate. I know. It's always I know. right there. We're and I just cocked wanna, and ready to go. Can Paul Mercurio still do four backflips? I don't think so. I don't he, think could, so. he couldn't slide across the floor like he did 30 years ago, could he? 
That's on his you know what? We give you a four. You say that right to yeah. him. I'm going to, I reckon, yeah. yeah. yeah he'll preface it with, and Larry sent to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they've got to be nice. Thanks, Jamie. Too, we can't wait for this. Good yeah. to see you, buddy. Yeah, let's save some water, guys. I know it's raining now, but we need water for security. Absolutely. Yeah. Good, Good to see you. Okay. Well, last year we were introduced to Ant Middleton, the man in charge of whipping our celebrities into shape on one of our favourite shows of 2020. It's called, of course, SAS Australia. Why are you so still? Why are you so still? Why are you still still? We haven't even started yet! What are you doing back here, number seven? What are you doing back here? Do you want to give me your number? Do you? Move in! This gave you a chance to redeem yourself, give you the benefit of the doubt. Why didn't you just tell me that's not in your trousers? Why are you wasting my time? They're just celebrities, Ant. But celebs be warned because Ant is back in the country and he's ready and raring to go for the second season. Ant Middleton, welcome to the program from Quarantine in Sydney. May I remind you, sir, this is not a game. No, it's not. Listen, thanks for having me back. Um, I'm day two in quarantine, so listen, I'm raring to go. We're having to get out there and to put some more celebrities through their paces. Yeah, yeah. You've arrived in Australia during some of the worst flooding we've had in 50 years. We'll get to the TV show in a minute. But as a former British soldier, you must have experienced some horrible conditions uh, during your career as well. Yeah, I've done a lot of um, you know, humanitarian aid, um, going um, to certain countries, helping out with certain disasters. Um, and unfortunately, you know, it's when the country comes together. It's when people come together when a sort of disaster hits. So the positives from it is, you know, the country coming together and, and tackling this um, issue um, as one solid unity. So, you know, you've got to look at the positives from the negatives. Yeah, have you ever found yourself in that sort of rapid water sort of rescue situation? Yeah, I once got swept down by a, um, a river by a water that I tried to cross. Mm. And you just can't mess with mother nature. You know, this is where teamwork really comes in and you really got to try and tackle the situation without putting yourself in harm's way. Yeah. All right, so that's okay for you to say, but then you say to celebrities, go out there and mess with mother nature, okay? <laughs> let's, talk about, let's talk about the reason you are in hotel quarantine. We're all excited that you're back in the country. New season of SAS Australia will start filming soon and Kylie is ready to rumble. Are you ready, Carly? Are you are you two coming on the show? Yeah, well, never most in of a us million are. years. Yes. What can we expect? What can we expect to on, see? It's not that bad. Um, well, basically, we we're going bigger and better this time, um, and ultimately, the course is about really, you know, getting the best out of people. I know it's a bit of tough love, and it's a bit of a, it looks a bit brutal, but ultimately, we're really testing the people to find out who they truly are. And with celebrities, you know, they have this facade, they have this sort of media um, presence, but ultimately we, 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 you know, rip that all away and we find out who the real individual is. You wanted to know if we wanted to go on the show. Well, we were watching a show here called Holy Moly, which is basically mini putt-putt, and we thought that was dangerous. So, no, we're not going on this one. <laughs> uh, will the rest of the directing staff be uh, coming back for the new series as well? Are they all in quarantine somewhere? Yeah, absolutely. We all got here two days ago. We're all quarantining, so we've got 14 days. Um, we have our first test today on day two and day 10. So we're just taking it in our stride. You know, the positives from this is that after 14 days, you get to um, experience your beautiful country. Um, I absolutely love it here. 
and then we get to take your celebrities and put them through their paces. So, <laughs> you're you going to lose a bit of fitness up. there in quarantine, Ant. Are you sort of doing push-ups and have you got sort of a little workout kit with you or what do you do when you're cooped up like that? Yeah, I've got a rowing machine um, in my room. So, again, just press-ups, dips. You know, I've got chairs around here. I can do a bit of CV with my rowing machine. And you just make the most of it. You know, you can dwell on it and think, oh, I'm cooped up. But ultimately, it's a bit of space to do, uh, to do what I need to do to catch up with work, a bit of me time. And, of course to get myself prepared and pumped for SASU Days wins. Well, it's about those mind games too, which is such an important part, and quarantine's a lot about that. Uh, you've also announced an Australian tour. You've got to tell us about this mind over muscle. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I've got a tour coming up in the, third, the second and third week of July, and it's called Mind Over Muscle, and it's exactly that. It's ultimately how to deal with uh, not only life, but with work, with relationships, with, with whatever comes your way, you know, how to deal with it in a positive manner. And I'm going to be talking about my career, how I got to where I am today, how I've broken things down, you know, whether it be positive or negative or failures or successes, and the mindset that I've adapted to get to where I am and to get to where I need to be. So ultimately, it's a, it's a bit of a, a positive tour. It's letting people know that, listen, we're in control. We've got the most powerful tool out there, and that's our minds. And if we can take control of that, there's not much that we can't achieve. Good stuff. Well, it's good to hear that you're making good time in your hotel room doing exercises. We bet you're not. We bet you're sitting there in your undies watching morning TV. But you can say <laughs> you don't you. want to see what's below yeah, this. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, good to see you, mate. We can't wait till you get out of there and get on with this program. Thanks, guys. You will see be. You again. Yeah, let's see you soon yeah, live in the studio you when you're out. Uh, you'll be able to watch Ann Middleton put our celebs to the test on SAS Australia a little later this year. Great show. Oh, I wonder who they who, who they do have lined up. I don't you know. No, I don't. Uh, we'll put all the ticket details for Ant Middleton's Mind Over Muscle Tour over on themorningshow.com.au. You might take the boys along to that. Oh, that'd be a good one. Oh, they'd love that, the boys. Of, yeah. Mm. <laughs> don't do no, that in front of Ant. No, like strong mind. Do the mm thing again. <laughs> You're kick-starting my way. <laughs> well, Eden Wood landed her first stage role at six months old. By three, she was on film sets. And at four, well, it was a little show called Toddlers and Tiaras that made her a household name. <laughs> And Eden Wood joins us now, all grown up. Oh, hi, hey. Eden. Hi, guys. Hi, from Arkansas. How old are you now, Eden? I just turned 16. I actually got a car. So I'm driving now, which is insane. My mom is not a big fan of that, but... <laughs> is, is that your mum laughing in the background? Yes, she's behind the camera. Just... <laughs> of course she is. Toddlers... Changed, as yeah. you can tell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Toddlers and Tiaras was a global hit. You were once the most talked about, uh, some of the most talked about people in the whole world. At just four years old, how does that impact a childhood? Can you even measure that? Well, pageants were an amazing experience for me. Um, there was nothing negative about it. I mean, every little kid loves to go in their mom's closet and dress up in their heels and their fancy clothes. They love to put on the makeup. And pageants were no different than that. It's just like any other sport. And they gave me such a confidence that I can use now for if I have a job interview, if I have to get up in front of my school and do a presentation or talk in front of people, you know, I'm not scared to do that because of pageants and because of the show. I was able to open so many doors, like Little Rascal Save the Day. I played Darla. Um, I have Next Big Thing on Amazon Prime. Discovery Plus just came out with Toddlers and Tiaras. Where are they now? So pageants 
were a blessing. Now that you are 16, do you ever go back and look at the episodes and, and does your opinion change at all when you go back and, and look at some of the old episodes, Eden? No, my opinion does not change. I look back and I laugh just because me and my mom had so much fun together. It's so funny seeing my mom's reactions. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's crazy. And I've done a few pageants recently and it's, it's the same. It's just like, it's like a traveling back in time. I love it. <laughs> now, you're only 16, of course, but one day, if you become a mum of your own children, would you consider involving them with pageants? Will you be doing that? I definitely would because pageants had such a positive impact on me and of course my mom always gave me that option of if you don't want to do this, if you want to go home, you can. Like She always gave me that option and at the age of six I actually told her, I was like, I don't think this is for me anymore and that's what I love so much. I mean, I'm going to give my kids that option too, but I definitely, they're going to be doing a few. Okay, so what have you been doing since? Uh, the showbiz didn't stop. You've modelled at New York Fashion Week. I mean, what was that like? Modelling at New York Fashion Week, it reminds me a lot of pageants, but it's like a step up. I love getting out there. I love meeting the new people. Um, I feel so beautiful walking down the runway. It's, it's amazing. I, I've always loved the stage, and New York Fashion Week just gives me more of that, so... Okay, you've got a lot going on. You've also got your own music and a makeup line. You've got more deals than Harry and Meghan at this point. Uh, what, what we have to, we've got to ask you about the show, The Next Big Thing, NYC. Why did you decide to let rolling cameras back into your life? Well, you know, I missed it. Just like I missed pageants, I missed being in front of the camera. I missed um, meeting new people. And this cast, you guys, they're amazing. So talented. If you go check it out, it's on Amazon Prime. There's a DJ who I actually just worked with on a song, Keep Dreaming. And with COVID, we had to do everything through Zoom. Um, it's really a crazy story, but Keep Dreaming is out. Um, there's a multi-millionaire, Isabella Barrett, who was also on Toddlers and Chiars with me. Uh, so, yeah, Next Big Thing has been amazing, too. Okay, well, it seems like you're just as determined to have your name up in lights as you were a decade ago. What, what is your <laughs> ultimate dream, Eden? My ultimate dream is, first of all, to graduate high school, be a valedictorian. Um, I want to go to college, get my degree. I'm not positive on what I want to like get my degree in. I'm thinking maybe like criminal justice or business law, something along those lines. And then of course I am hoping to see my name in the credits of another huge movie in a movie theater. I want to hear my music on the radio. I want to get in my car, click a button and be like, oh my gosh, that's me. <laughs> and of course I want to continue with modeling because it's something I've loved since I was a little girl. So I'm surprised that you could squeeze in this interview. You've got so much going on there. Eden, lovely to, lovely to catch up with you. And hi to your mum behind the camera too, uh, where she spent a lot of the time behind the scenes there. Okay, see you guys. Thank you. Well, large parts of New South Wales have been declared a catastrophe by the Insurance Council of Australia, with the worst affected property owners being offered urgent assistance and other policyholders given priority for their flood claims. Now, insurers have received close to 12,000 claims in the last few days. While it's still too soon to put a figure on the total damage bill, to give you an idea, 2020's East Coast storms and flooding event saw almost a billion dollars worth of payouts. Of course, it's much bigger. To help us break down this process, Channel 7's network finance editor Gemma Acton is here with us. Gemma, hi. Uh, were the caused by a burst water pipe, a, a storm or a flood? 
Um, how can you be sure that you're covered with your insurance? Well, if you don't understand the details of your policy or a bit confused as to how you might be covered, the Insurance Council Australia has a hotline, so you can give that a call and they will help walk you through what your policy includes and doesn't include. Also, if you can't remember who you're with or whether you even have insurance, give them a call and they'll help you with that. Since 2011, when we had the Brisbane floods, the definition of flood has been standardised, which is really helpful. Mm. So there is one consistent definition of flood and it is automatically included in almost all home and contents insurances. More often than not, you have to actually opt out if you don't want it. Uh, but if you don't have it for any reason, you might also be covered by storm damage. So check out all different options. Okay, and you can call the insurance council if you can't remember. If you had to run from your house and you didn't get to your filing cabinet. They'll help you. And you've, been, you've had that insurance policy for 20 years and you've just forgotten who it is. That'll Absolutely. Um, damage is devastating and so widespread. What's the best way to approach the claims process? Get onto your insurer as soon as possible. Uh, you, you mentioned just now that there are around 12,000 claims already lodged. They're expecting this to get into the hundreds of thousands of claims. So the quicker you can get onto your insurer, you might not have your list of possessions yet, but you can at least get some emergency funding or some short-term temporary yeah. accommodation, hopefully. When you do go back to your house, obviously, Number one is your safety. Don't put yourself in any sort of danger, so be careful around electricity, for instance. But document everything. If you have your phone, you can take photographs, you can take videos, you can save samples of material, you can get uh, barcodes or, or product numbers. So the more detailed a list you have, the easier it will be to get exact replacements yeah. for, right. for your stuff. And very importantly, don't start any work until you have written permission from your insurer to start repairs. Because they might say, well, we didn't approve this, exactly. we're, we're not going has to, to be compensate approved. you. Right. One thing policyholders need to be aware of is scammers. Oh. Um, they, they seem to come out at this time, don't they? They do. They, they feed on disasters mm. and they've they're actually got a, a term for them, disaster chasers. So mm. sadly, they'll turn up on your doorstep knowing you're extremely vulnerable and offer to do some work, uh, generally wanting cash payment. Lots of risks to this. Firstly, they might not do the work. Secondly, they might overcharge you. Thirdly, they might start the work and not finish it or do it incorrectly. And fourthly, your insurance may not uh, sympathise or, 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 or cover it. So mm. if you are going to engage with someone who turns up on your doorstep, uh, make sure you check with your insurer that they're legitimate and they're someone the insurer approves of. And make sure you have a written contract that specifies what you're paying, what they're going to do for you and the time frame in which they're going to do for you. We've had so many awful stories from disasters in the past right. where it's taken years and years and years for things to get fixed. Yeah. And this is some idiot turning up in a ute saying, I'll fix your roof now, but I need $3,000. This is right? prime season going. for them, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then you may never see them again. Absolutely, or, yeah. or your cash. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, these flood insurance claims are you on from bushfire claims. Heartbreakingly, some in the same areas, right? Will we expect to see a rise in premiums after all this is done because those insurance companies have been paying out a lot? Yeah, look, insurance companies have their own insurance. It's called reinsurance, so they are able to um, pass on a lot of those costs. It has been a really bad period, though. The last natural disaster season racked up almost $6 billion in total payouts for catastrophes, uh, all sorts of disasters from bushfires mm. to hailstorms mm -hmm. to, to other floods as well. Uh, insurance is repriced every year, so we could very well see that. What a lot of organisations are pushing for, from the Prudential Regulator to the Productivity Commission, is to do more prevention in advance, more disaster mitigation, so we see less catastrophes when we do have extreme weather conditions. So that would certainly help. At the moment, only around 5% of budgets for disasters go towards mitigation. Most of it's just on recovery yeah, right, afterwards. Right, right. Mm. So that will hopefully become more and more of a focus. Because there's always that big debate and not much gets done. Exactly. Right. Lots of talk. A lot of these homes we see are built in flood, 
flood-prone areas where it is actually difficult to get insurance? Do governments need to do more there? If they're going to let people build in these areas, do they need to do something about maybe subsidising a policy? Or Because it yeah. seems heart, it's heartbreaking. Carly, there definitely to needs to be a bigger conversation around this. I think yeah. around 130,000 people currently work or live in the floodplains around the Hawkesbury, and that's expected to double over the next couple of decades, which is just not safe from what we've seen mm. now. So between the government and developers and people who are intending to buy in that region, um, there certainly needs to be a, a bigger conversation going on. Because yeah, mm. those people are encouraged to go there. To, well, exactly. Uh, many, you know, exactly. Cheaper land, cheaper building, community. All right, Gemma, thank you very much. Thank Good you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, back in 1992, 16 million sets of eyeballs tuned in to watch the debut episode of Melrose Place. And one of the resident hunks from the most sought-after address in West Hollywood was aspiring writer Billy Campbell, played by actor Andrew Shu. Yeah, away from the small and silver screens. Andrew hit the turf for a brief stint as a professional soccer player. But the 54-year-old's real passion lies in his entrepreneurial and philanthropic endeavours, with his latest campaign inspiring the citizens of America to create real change. Andrew Shu joins us live from New York City. Welcome to The Morning Show. Thanks for having me. Now, at 7pm, they were interrupting your, uh, your Guinness beer, and I was told to never interrupt a man while he's having a Guinness. So, cheers. <laughs> now, we'll get to your latest project in just a tick, but first, we've got to go down memory lane with you, of course. How crazy was life as a 90s heartthrob? Well, you know, I, the, the world has changed now. I think it's, it's a lot tougher being a celebrity these days. You're, the scrutiny is, is so much worse. So, I, I feel lucky that it happened at that point. But... Yeah, we it, it was it, it was a fantasy world for sure. Uh, you know, we were we came off of the heels of nine hundred two one zero, and and uh, it was just a lot of fun. It was a campy show, but at, at that time it, it was it was a real kind of conversation starter at, at the water cooler every day. So it, mm. it was fun to be part of it. Oh, it was fabulous. You weren't initially cast as Billy Campbell, is that right? Tell us about how you landed the role, Andrew. Yeah, that was uh, that was some real fate. I uh, I actually auditioned for it and didn't even get a call back. And then they they ended up hiring somebody, but not not loving the way he was playing the relationship with Allison. He he was playing kind of hard to get, I guess. And uh, so they let him go. And then they did an emergency uh, casting session at Aaron Spelling's house. And there were 30 people who came in. We all drove in our cars and got them valeted. And, <laughs> and, uh, about three hours later, all the cars had left, but my 82 Mazda that I had bought for $2,000, <laughs> uh, that was the last car left. And I, I got the part and literally on Monday I was, I was doing the show. Oh, so. wow. And Tuesday buying a new car. <laughs> your wife is uh, good morning America presenter, the fabulous Amy Roback. And, uh, she admitted on your second date, was it that she was a Jake fan, not a Billy <laughs> fan. How could you even talk to that woman again, let alone marry her? 
Yeah, you, you did your research. Uh, yeah, that, that's true. I, so then I just thought, oh, this will be my life's goal to win her over and show her that I'm, I'm actually a tough guy with a heart. Oh, <laughs> wow. How did you two meet? Because, I mean, you being an actor, was she a guest on, were you a guest on her show? No. Yeah, she, we, it was actually a book party. Uh, we had both actually been in 12-year uh, marriages that that sadly didn't work out, and uh, we were both just becoming single around the same time. Uh, she had two girls. I had three boys. Uh, so it was a little bit like the Brady Bunch, and we, we, we blended our family. And we actually, just this week, we've uh, announced a, a children's book that we're, that we're writing together called Better Together, which is about oh. the, the squirrels and the chipmunks who get together and decide that they want to blend their families. Oh, That's I'm, fabulous. I'm sniffing a Brady Bunch reboot. It's perfect. Uh, now <laughs> you, you'll have to come back on the show with Amy and talk about that. That sounds now, fabulous. Now you're yeah, not, we can do that in the fall. Yeah. yeah, you're not just an actor, of course. You have professional athlete listed on your resume too. Uh, have you always had this deep love of soccer? Yeah, that was really my, my whole life was soccer uh, growing up and, and my dad played in college, my brothers. And so that that really was that was my dream. So when when Major League Soccer launched in 1996, I was already four years into Melrose Place. Uh, but I, I auditioned and tried out for the for the Galaxy and uh, made the team and, and got to play in the inaugural season which was, was incredibly exciting because we had huge crowds. I think our opening crowd at the Rose Bowl was 70,000 people. So, and Major League Soccer is doing incredibly well now. Uh, it's an established league. Uh, so I, I feel very proud to have been part of that inaugural season. Would they come to the, to the ground and cheer on Andrew or Billy? Was there... Uh, maybe a little bit of both, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed earning my spot as a legitimate player. Yeah. I remember, you know, playing at Giant Stadium in New York was a dream come true. So I, I grew up in New Jersey, so it was yeah. a dream. Uh, so away from the cameras and the soccer field, you've been flexing your entrepreneurial muscle. Uh, the, uh, the pull must have been pretty strong for you to give up acting and, and move in that direction. Yeah, after getting off the show, I really I decided to move back east and, and raise my family there and, and become an entrepreneur, started a, a digital media business and, and started working on a number of philanthropic efforts. Uh, Do Something was a, an organization we had started in the early 90s. And, and now uh, we've just established in the last two years, The People, which is, you know, our, our government is, you know, we are meant to be uh, run by the con the consent of the governed and the people. I, I think until now have never had to be organized uh, the way we must now. And I, I, governments all across the world really are struggling with a populism that maybe not so organized. And I think that if if uh, the citizenries in these various Western nations who are struggling right now uh, against corruption and 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 really governments that are not working for the people in, in essence. They're really working on their own behalf and their own party power. And sadly, co competitiveness is kind of eaten in on many of these countries. And I, I believe in America especially, we have to change the rules. To use the sports analogy, if you had soccer and there was no more goal scoring, you would change the rules to figure out how to get some goal scoring. Well, that's what's happened. Our government can no longer function properly and we have to change the rules. And the only way you can change some of the electoral laws in our country is for the American people to get organized and state by state change those rules. And actually one of the rule changes 
uh, is to have ranked choice voting or kind of where you order your preferences versus yeah. just picking one winner. And I know that you guys have that in Australia. And that enables a majority winner and a consensus winner, which allows for more moderates to win, which allows for more compromise and more deal making. Yes. Right now, there's no deal making. It's all extremes. And it's it's really just turned it, you know, ground the whole thing to a halt. Yes, we we're all uh, very familiar with waiting for the preferences to come in. I'll, I'll be <laughs> yeah, right. um, Andrew, really terrific to talk to you. We can tell you're very passionate about that. We will put the details up on our website. But really nice to, to chat and have a little stroll down memory lane again this morning. Yeah, great to be with you guys. Thanks, we'll let Andrew. you get back to your Guinness. Thanks for talking to us. <laughs> all right. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Well, Australians could finally be returning to quarantine-free international travel across the Tasman, at least. The New Zealand Cabinet is expected to make a decision today on when we can resume travel to their shores, with reports saying the borders may reopen mid-April. Now, this news comes just as the Australian Federal Government announced a $1.2 billion support package to the aviation sector. As part of this scheme, 800,000 discounted airfares and a JobKeeper replacement for 7,500 Qantas crew members who will each receive a $500 per week payment. Let's bring in Margie Osmond from Tourism and Transport Forum Australia. Nice Morning. to see you again, Margie. Hi, Margie. Now, before we get into it, New South Wales, uh, first up, you know, the bushfires, then the pandemic. Now, these horrible floods. Mm. Uh, could it get any worse for tourism operators right Locusts now? Locusts might be the only <laughs> right, additional right, thing. Right. You know, I mean, I think at this point in time, it's just really unfortunate timing. We're very close to Easter mm. and I'm sure there's an awful lot of regional destinations that were hoping this was going to be a big time of the year. Hopefully it still will be. Let's just hope the weather clears between now and then. Yeah. Okay, let's look at that $1.2 billion support package. This is to the aviation sector. We mentioned in the intro, Qantas getting a big slice of that. But there's also going to be discounted fares for people travelling. We start, we've started to see that being introduced, haven't we? Is this enough? Hmm. Uh, well, look, it is a $1.2 billion package for the whole industry, not just the aviation sector. The whole the tourism. That's right. right. Um, and look, we're, we're all for the stimulus package. Let's get everybody back in the air, get them feeling confident about travelling again. We think there's a bit more work needed on some of the destinations. We'd like to see a few more added in some of the big cities, for example, because uh, we know from some of the latest surveys that everybody wants to go for a long weekend in the big mm. city at the moment, so that'd be a good thing. Um, we think there's maybe a bit more support needed for the rest of the industry. There's there's some good things in the package for zoos and aquariums and travel agents, no job keeper, um, but we're talking to the government. So it, it is a lot of money and a lot of discussion around mm. the destinations that made the list. Margie, will, will this help at all? Yes, it will most definitely help because part of the big issue here is confidence. Now, if you make it easier for people to fly and you make it feel right and the right price, etc., etc., it will happen. And I do think the government had, you know, the right thinking hat on in terms of this sort of stimulus. It's just the other bit of support we need to do a bit more work on. OK, we mentioned in the intro New Zealand. We've been talking Ooh, about this for so long. And just when we got a sniff of it, it all got <laughs> shut down. So now we're getting another sniff with Cabinet meeting. So you're saying mid-April. That's just a couple of weeks yeah, away. So what, um, are you, what are you hearing? Well, remember, we have, in fact, been ready for about 10 months because mm. all the work was done on this some time ago. Um, we're hearing that it's looking very close and there's a chance there'll be an announcement later today. Um, it will be two-way travel, no quarantine. Uh, and it will just be a case of seeing how it goes. It doesn't mm. mean it won't snap shut at some point again, but you've got to start somewhere. And that's the issue, isn't it? It can, mm. it can be open for a week or two or a month or two, and then we're back around again. What about other international travel? Now, we know the airlines have been talking about an October return. Uh, while on the weekend, head of the Federal Health Department, Brendan Murphy, said it would be next year. How long can the international airlines hang on for? 
Well, it's difficult. In fact, I've just come back from Alice Springs where they have the enormous aeroplane graveyard where yeah. all of the international oh, right. jets are stored. That's an amazing place, which just makes you focus on how much there isn't happening from an aviation point of view. And a heartbreaking scene, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. But look, I think Singapore's a reality for us, um, possibly even by October. The thing is, you've got to remember, we're not talking about everything being open. It's a progressive exercise, and they may very well start with some ports like Singapore as mm. early as before the end of this year. Mm. Okay, lots of talk about how the vaccines will affect people will get the vaccine, they won't get the vaccine, maybe that means shorter hotel quarantine. So that movement in and around vaccine requirements, where are you at with that? Well, I think the big problem at the moment is which vaccine? Uh, because, you know, do we recognise the Chinese vaccine, for example, because the Chinese are such a critical part of our international tourism marketplace? Um, you know, do we require you to actually quarantine for a couple of days before you leave home? So you, you have a test, you have a shot, you stay at home for two days and then you're allowed to travel. All of those details are yet to be figured out and I think that's why it's going to take a little longer for people to feel comfy doing the international. So many moving parts and so much, so so much grey area, isn't there? Uh, okay, back home. School holidays, Easter long weekend, just around the corner. We've all been there, all of our audience have done it. You've booked something, you've had to cancel or postpone. Should we feel confident looking forward now? to make a booking? What do you think, Mark? I'm going to make a rash statement and say absolutely. Oh, I'm, well. I'm hoping that the states are feeling uh, that things are pretty good at the moment. There's not an awful lot of problems happening around the place. I think we're going to be open for business, so book away. You haven't said absolutely place. on this couch before. In this... <laughs> <laughs> Have you? <laughs> Anyway, and what about airlines? So we need them to remain flexible with what they've yeah. been. And they have been okay-ish. They have. They have to this point. Can we expect that level of flexibility moving forward? Because yeah. we we need it. We do need it, and yeah. the airlines need everybody to feel confident about flying. Mm. So they're going to make it as easy as possible for people to do just that. And I think they have been pretty flexible to this point. But look, you know, I mean, as I say, I've just come back from the Northern Territory. I'm off to Brisbane on Wednesday. The world is starting to return to normal. We know that because you're smiling. Margie Osmond is smiling, <laughs> and that means it's a good day. We've turned, we've met the turning point, I think. I hope hopefully. so. Well, there is a reason Bridie Carter is one of the most popular personalities on TV. As Tess McLeod, the two-time Gold Logie nominee, made us laugh and made us cry, while on the dance floor we cheered her on to a mirrorball win. But now we're seeing an all-new side to the small screen star on Home and Away, where Bridie, or should we say Susie, is stirring up Summer Bay. Bridie Carter oh. joins us now live from her property in Byron Bay. Bridie, we're going to get to that very dramatic performance in a moment. But first of all, we've got to talk to you about the weather. You're up in Byron. Uh, you must really feel for the farmers who have been seriously impacted in that area right now. Yes, absolutely. Um, I am one of those farmers. <laughs> but thank goodness, um, majority of my property is quite high. But, um, yeah, the infrastructure that's being destroyed, people's crops, people's livelihoods, and, of course, their homes right up the east coast. It's um, devastating. Well, it used to see you on a farm, of course, thanks to McLeod's daughter, but uh, when there's no torrential rain, it does look like this is pretty much paradise for you. You are well and truly home in this environment, Bridie. I am, but 18 months ago, my paddocks were not green. They were um, drought-ridden and brown. So, you know, I am, it's ridiculous. I'm, I'm living the life that my character, Tess McLeod, lived. And sometimes I think it's kind of weird, uh, mm. but it's, it's wonderful. All right. Now, you're a mum of two boys. You were pregnant with your eldest, Otis, uh, when you filmed the clouds. Uh, how's that? Where's Otis now? What's, what's he up to now? How tall is he? 
Uh, well, Otis is um, about to turn 16 and he's about six foot two. He's actually at home today because um, he has two river crossings so he can't get to school, which I'm sure he's very disappointed about. Um, but yeah, my baby is a, a, a big baby. Yeah. Great. So from Byron Bay to Summer Bay, uh, we've been loving your turn as Susie on Home and Away. She is a bit of work. This week, her evil streak goes a step too far. What can you tell us, Bridie? Um, look, yes, she's willing to go to any lengths, I would say. Um, for me, it's been really wonderful to play a villain. Um, and she certainly didn't start out that way. But um, I often play warm, lovely characters. So as an actor, to play something that's very far from myself um, is, is challenging and wonderful. And this role was so beautifully written um, that I was very fortunate to be offered it. Well, I saw the promo just before I went to bed last night. I couldn't sleep. That's how, that's how scared I was. Oh, no. This is actually your third time on the show. You first appeared on Home and Away. What are we talking, 1995? What of your first roles? It was out of NIDA, and that's Rachel Blake, who was my cast, uh, my classmate at NIDA, and we played the first same-sex couple on Home and Away. So that was groundbreaking again. So yeah, I'm very proud of that. Yeah, that was so young, though. <laughs> 1995. Wow, it's probably been a while since you've actually. And then you played another character on Home and Away as well. You came back, but as someone completely different. Yeah. Yes, with Nick Testoni there, sorry. In the, I'm just, I'm busy watching myself. <laughs> uh, this is like, yeah, showing all these horrible, like, family photographs that you're really embarrassed. <laughs> but no, like, I think, you know, the wonderful thing about this show is time does pass. And, you know, now I've been able to come back again as Susie, who's completely different to these two yeah. other characters. Oh, and Bridie's also about 20 years old. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Bridie, hey, lovely to catch up. We look forward to seeing nasty Susie on the show. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. Thanks, okay. Bridie. Terrific to catch up. You can catch Bridie on Home and Away 7pm tonight right here on Channel 7. Well, new research is suggesting that sperm counts could reach zero by the year 2045. Thanks to our heavy-handed use of hormone-disrupting chemicals, including plastic containers, food wrapping, soaps and shampoos. Known as forever chemicals, these components don't break down in the environment or the human body. Now, alarmingly, this same research links these type of pollutants to smaller penis size and volume of testes. So, do we have a reproductive crisis on the horizon? And what can we do to improve the future of male fertility? For more, we welcome obstetrician, gynaecologist and fertility specialist, Dr Joseph Scroy, live from Melbourne. Uh, nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Um, sperm count zero by 2045. That, that would mean the end, end of the population. Explain. Well, certainly. I mean, I, don't, I think there's a bit of an over-exaggeration, of course, in terms of the decrease in sperm counts. We certainly have seen a decrease over the generations. And I think largely contributed to the amount of toxins we're seeing in our environment. If we look at the chemicals, for example, that are around in 1947, we've now seen an almost increase in 25 times that amount now. Wow. And, of course, that's leaching into our sewage system, heading into our animal products. And, of course, we're using a lot, lot more products that contain chemicals. Now, apparently the use of industrial chemicals in everyday products is tied to lower sperm counts, erectile dysfunction and smaller penises, and that's underlined in this script. Um, I noticed that I got that question, not Kylie, so mm. I'm just going to go with that. <laughs> mm. Can you explain what I just said, please? 
Well, look, of course, we have hormones that circulate from our, in our body, and particularly in the males, the testosterone, which is important in the production of sperm. Now, these hormone-disrupting chemicals can reduce the amount of testosterone, and particularly when it's a poignant time in the development of a baby boy inside the mum's tummy, if the mum has high exposure to those uh, hormone-disrupting chemicals, it can reduce the size of the penis. So we are particularly concerned about those sort of things. And of course, for the average male who's consuming a lot of processed foods where there are these hormone-disrupting chemicals, then that can also reduce their own testosterone and cause sperm damage or DNA damage, as well as also a reduction in the concentration of the sperm and also the way the sperm look. Now, of course, you need good-looking sperm, not only a good-looking bloke, in order to fertilise an egg. Okay, so healthy sperm. There's been some chatter about COVID impacting the quality of sperm. I mean, is this a real concern? Does the science stack up on this one? So there has been some studies that have shown that there's been COVID damage to the testes. And we know the way that COVID disrupts or enters into our body is via certain receptors called the ACE receptors. And those receptors are quite predominant in our respiratory system and hence why, unfortunately, a lot of people have passed away due to respiratory illnesses. But in addition to that, there's also these ACE receptors within the testes. And so we have seen in some studies some damage to the testes. But I suppose to flip it on its head a little bit, any viral illness that you have will cause some damage to the testes. An increase in fever and temperature will show a little bit of a transient decrease in sperm production. So I think the jury's out. We need a little bit more time to see whether there's any long-term consequences of COVID infection in men in terms of their reproductive health. Doctor, evidence suggests age may also damage um, sperm. So do men have a sort of a biological clock? And if so, how old is too old to entertain the idea of procreating, do you think? Yeah, look, I think women for so long have held the burden of infertility. And so, you know, we're not really looked at blokes for a long period of time. But in actual fact, now we do see a correlation between outcomes in terms of not only fertility, but also pregnancy, dependent on the age of, um, of men. And this can have impacts not only in things like autism, but also an increased risk of Down syndrome and also pregnancy complications such as preeclampsia. So, you know, to answer your question about the age, look, I always say to couples, consider pregnancy when you're physically, financially, socially, emotionally and medically ready to do so. But you've got to understand you're not going to meet all those criteria. So I would certainly be recommending that people, particularly blokes, contemplate pregnancy before the age of 40. Okay. We often hear women need to stop drinking alcohol and coffee if they're trying to conceive. What lifestyle tweaks can improve male fertility, doctor? Look, it's pretty much the same. So, you know, it takes two to tango in the bedroom and it takes two to tango in preparation for those 100 days leading towards pregnancy. So maintaining a good, healthy diet, reducing alcohol consumption as well as also stopping smoking, reduce your weight and also try to avoid pollutants and, and things that are, that are in chemicals. So you can reduce to free fragrances, uh, you know, try to use detergents that don't have any fragrances in it as well to try to decrease these pollutants or these hormone disrupting chemicals in your body all right a fascinating chat uh, doctor thank you very much for your time and if we never see the graphic with the fruit and veggies on it again it'll be too <laughs> soon good to see you my pleasure 
Well, after decades in the spotlight, Tina Turner is taking her final bow. As a gift to her fans, the rock legend is releasing a documentary, sort of a, a catalogue of her life's work. Simply titled Tina, the biography details her traumatic rise to fame and breakthrough success as a solo artist. Uh, we sat down with the Oscar-winning directors who were entrusted with telling her story. Well, directors Dan Lindsay and TJ Martin join us now. Dan, welcome to the show. Tina's rise to the top is really unlike any other. What do you believe is the key to her success? Oh, wow. Um, after, after three years of, uh, of exploring her life and making this film, I wish I had the easy answer because then I would just uh, steal it. But um, <laughs> I think, you know, more than anything, it's uh, Tina's perseverance and her ability to just kind of move forward and and you know what she has always done in her entire life is is kind of carve out a space um for the things she wants to do right and for her own identity especially when a world in many times was telling her it wasn't possible um she kind of said well i'll show you it's possible hmm. So, TJ, your previous documentary work is far removed, actually, from celebrity storytelling. So how did you both land directing this particular piece? Hmm. For a long time, we've been, you know, we've been kind of pitched a lot of, as, as you point out, kind of celebrity driven, you know, cultural figures, films on cultural figures. And we were really hesitant at first uh, because usually those films are means to kind of leverage the celebrity in search of a story. And as we dove into Tina's story and kind of, you know, did a little research and understood a little bit more of the details, the thing that really sold us was that um, we could actually make the proper film. This was someone who lived an extraordinary life, um, who just happened to be uh, an international icon and one of, you know, an incredible performer, one of a kind. Gee, you cover so much ground. You tackle her past trauma. You celebrate her huge success. How do you start to find a balance between those two? Um, well, I mean, that I guess is kind of the the story of Tina Turner is that balance. Mm. Um, you know, the 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 triumphs and the tragedy, and and so I think for us in in the storytelling, it was how do we how do we honor that that is the real truth of her life story how do we how do we feel the highs um but how do we also experience the lows in a way that is um is truthful from tina's point of view right and not sensationalized and not just putting things in to be provocative but to truly uh, that was the aim of the film at least to truly show you what tina's experience has been um in these 80 uh years of life you spent so long wading through all this incredible research, following this amazing journey. Did you come across anything, maybe one thing that really, really surprised you about Tina? I mean, the most surprising thing about Tina is, uh, you know, highly featured in the film. It's uh, in our early conversations, we realized that the, the pain of her past is really just kind of bubbling just underneath the surface. And that's actually what gave us the, the point of view of the film. We kind of decided to tell a film uh, that was an exploration of Tina's relationship with Tina's story. That was the one thing we felt um, hadn't really been explored in other mediums, you know? Yeah. Dan, in the film, Tina talks about bowing out slowly. So how did you feel knowing this documentary might actually be her final gift to her fans? Well, I think, you know, uh, I'm not sure that we were 
con how conscious of that we were um, in the making of the film. And I think that may have been by design because I think if we had really thought about it uh, from the beginning, that would have been too much pressure on us. But, um, you know, that was something that kind of came out of our interview with Tina and, and, and talking about the film and talking about the process of making the film. Um, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, for us, again, it was important to um, to recontextualize Tina's story from her point of view and to, to allow her to, to kind of take that bow. I think for Tina, it's 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 much of this is about her desire to, you know, she retired from the stage in 2009. I think she has a desire to kind of retire from having to be the persona of Tina Turner. And she's she's very happy right now. Uh, TJ, what did you uh, what did you take away personally from this experience, or was there something uh, a little gem in there from Tina uh, that you found out along the way that has changed your life? Something like that. Has changed has changed my life. I mean, my personal takeaway is is as much as the film is um, doesn't lean into the artistry of Tina Turner. My personal takeaway is the reminder of how incredible of a performer she is. She's you know, she's one of a kind. Um, I think people think about her as just purely a ball of energy on stage, but what I came to realize is so much of that is um, beyond a natural gift. It's also, she was a choreographer. Um, she really kind of, she, she, she was a pioneer in many ways that, that I, I personally had just, you forget those facets of her when you get wrapped up into her narrative. All right. Well, that's great stuff. TJ and Dan, thank you very much for joining us on The Morning Show this morning. We appreciate your time. All good. Cool. Thanks so much. In the mid-2000s, millions of people right around the world got swept up in the sex, the scandal and stars of Desperate Housewives. But on Wisteria Lane, there was only one man who could keep the ladies under control. Hunky plumber Mike Delfino, a.k.a. James Denton. Starring in all eight seasons of the hit show, James would become a household name in 30 different countries right around the world and with 50 credits to his name, including a new cult hit. He's still one of TV's top picks. We are delighted to welcome James Denton to The Morning Show. Hello. Good to see you. Hey, Larry and Kaylee. How are you? Good, good. So much to talk to you about. We've got to start, of course, with Desperate Housewives. Mike Delfino was one of the hottest men on TV. Are you OK with that title? Because I would be really uncomfortable with that. Were you OK with that? You got it right. No, I was never okay with it. It's funny. I spent most of my career playing bad guys until Housewives. So I always said that until the Housewives writers convinced America that Terry Hatcher would date me, I had never been hunky. But suddenly, <laughs> suddenly I was on the hunky. I mean, I was happy to be there. Don't get me wrong. But it's uncomfortable. Like that, that shot that's chased follows me forever. The, the shirtless shot in the front yard. I got that script. That was just the first episode. I had no idea that it was the role was going to be that much of that. So I literally was eating pizza and drinking a beer when I when I opened the script. And I got to that scene, I spit out the pizza, threw the beer down, and, you know, straight to the gym, and I still didn't get in very good shape. But it was it's a lot of work, Larry. No, I, I believe you. No, uh, you look you look like you achieved the the goal. Uh, your on-screen uh, death was one of those moments that had TV audiences gasping. After eight seasons, were you, were you happy with your exit? I was thrilled with it. Yeah, they were great about that. You know, here it is. You're going to see it. It was really Terry Hatcher is so brilliant in this scene. She's heartbreaking. With, I'm lying in her lap, dying, and she's just sobbing uncontrollably. But they actually called me in and asked me about it before they did it. They wanted to do something shocking uh, before the finale, and they couldn't kill any of the women. 
And they actually called me in the network in March here and said, hey, we're thinking about killing Mike off with about four to go. Um, and they had to pay me for all of them anyway. So, and I got a good exit. I got to go do a bunch of, you know, some talk shows and talk about the show. And, and I got three episodes off. So it was, it was, I thought they did it. I thought they did it well. And it's really heartbreaking, mainly thanks to Terry. Did you go straight back to the beer and the pizza straight away? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We think alike. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> really, I haven't had to do much of that since. I've done a couple of movies maybe, but uh, that was the only role really where I, you know, I'm sure I'm the sort of leading man in Goodwitch now, but it's you don't take your shirt off on Hallmark, so um, there's stuff, <laughs> I don't have to do that anymore. Well, well, tell us about Goodwitch. Are you enjoying that show? Yeah, it's. I mean, we just finished our seventh season uh, with Catherine Bell. It's, it's her show. Um, most people know her from JAG or Army Wives. You know, it's uh, Hallmark has been doing great. I don't know if if you have it there where the show runs there, but um, it's it's a really fun show. We never thought we would go for this long. Um, the great cast and Hallmark is a, is a great network here. You know, they do really wholesome family stuff and still manage to keep it compelling. We laughed at the storylines are exactly the same that they were on Housewives. You just do it a little bit. You know, you just soften it a little bit, leave your clothes on and don't not so much blood. But the, the human drama is pretty much all the same. So they do a great job of keeping it compelling and still. You don't have to worry about your kids walking through and it's yeah. uh, still family fair. Yeah. yeah, well, this is all available on Netflix, of course, in Australia. Today, oh. you're a father of two, but you didn't raise your family in Hollywood. Was that a really conscious decision of the time? Let, let's, let's get out of this craziness. It was a combination, yeah. Um, uh, their mom was born here in Minnesota. So uh, we thought, you know, maybe we should get the kids out of L.A. It's not a great place. There they are. Uh, it's not a great place for kids. It's tough. School's really expensive. Um, so uh, we decided as soon as Housewives ended, we'd come up here and let them grow up in a little more normal suburban American, you know, neighborhood. And uh, and I was lucky to land Goodwitch when I got up here at Shoots in Toronto, so I didn't even stop working. But it was a conscious decision to get them near family and out of L.A. James, it's, it sounds like that you've been able to reach this really great place of still having a terrific career and, and a bit of the Hollywood glam, but, but still keeping things really real, if you like. Not a lot of people achieve that. Well, thank you. It's, you know, it's a conscious decision. And I think I was lucky that I sort of, if you want to call it, made it, you know, or really hit Housewives hit when I was 40. I think if I were younger, you know, we had some younger actors who didn't sort of handle it the same way. But you have to be smart enough to realize that it's a moment in time, be really grateful that it happens and realize it's not about you. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was, the show was about the women. I mean, I was lucky I got the plum male role on the show because I was with a few different women through the years. But you just have to be humble about it and enjoy it and realize it will be over soon enough. And, and it was a really fun um, eight-year run. We've got so much in common. This show is also very much about the women. Um, as a working actor, moving on from one, one, of, the <laughs> one of the most uh, watched shows on the planet, was it hard to sort of shake that? Or I mean, you, you touched on it then. You really did embrace the fandom. So you saw the fan stuff for what it was, right? Yeah, and I really, you know, I've never said no to anyone who stopped yeah. me on the street, or just because, thank God, they watched. Um, but Felicity Huffman joked in the last season that we were all going to go to acting jail for a little while. Because you <laughs> sort of do, because you get a little bit typecast. Um, but that's the small price to pay for being on a show that was that popular. But you do, there are people that won't see you for roles because they think they know everything you do. Oh, you're Mike Delfino. So I had trouble getting seen for anything that was like a suit and tie role or, a, you know, maybe a politician, anything like that that wasn't blue collar. Um, I had a little trouble uh, yeah. right after Housewives. Mm. So there's, that's, that's the only downside, but uh, you'll never hear me complain. Yeah. yeah. In hindsight, that was a really funny joke for Felicity to make, wasn't it? Yeah. When, you, when you look... It was perfect, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was, none of us had been on a hit. Terry had been on you know, a, me a medium hit, 
But uh, it, it was very true. Of course, Felicity probably worked quicker than anybody. Mm. I don't think Terry really has much interest in being in front of the camera anymore. She does a lot of voiceover. But uh, and Eva Longoria is very politically active and doing a lot of producing. So yeah, it's been interesting to see where we all went uh, afterwards. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Still too soon for Felicity Huffman to be doing jail jokes, but lovely to talk to you this morning. What a treat. Uh, uh, everyone, uh, everyone upstairs in the office going crazy to see you this morning. So we do appreciate your time. Oh, no. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, it's great to, to see you guys. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. In a world, okay, okay, I feel like I'm under a lot of pressure here now, right? Okay, let me, oh, let me try. Oh, absolutely. Okay, okay. In a, I can't even do it. In a world where streaming services threaten the survival of cinemas, one man has the fate of the movie trailer business resting squarely on his magnificent vocal cords. <laughs> Meet Red Pepper. I'm not even going to try it. One of the UK's <laughs> most prolific voiceover artists. This big, booming baritone was destined for blockbusters and he's got hundreds of credits. Something is coming. Something big. Men in black. Saving the Earth from the scum of the universe. Blair Witch Project. Armageddon. Space Jam. Mr. Bean's Holiday. <laughs> With a career spanning 25 years, Red's also done recordings for TV commercials, of course, audio books, animations and video games. Can you introduce him, Kylie? I just don't want my voice anywhere near him. Oh. Hello. We cross now to London to say hello to Red Pepper. Uh, come on, Red. Let, let's hear it. Hello. I feel, I feel threatened by Larry <laughs> in a world where Larry stands beside Kylie and Kylie looks forward to cleaning her grout. Good morning to you all. How you all doing? Oh, great. So great to see. Great to hear you. Uh, you're known as the movie trailer man. H- how did you get into this line of work? Or is it so screamingly obvious that you couldn't do anything else with that magnificent voice? Absolutely accidentally. I used to do a regular job by driving trains. And whilst I was driving trains, I made an announcement on the, on the train and somebody in the television industry heard my voice. He was traveling on the train. He came to my cab, tapped on my window. We exchanged numbers. The rest is history. Yeah. Wow. So did you have any training then, Red, or, or do you just get direction when you're in a recording booth? Because it's one thing to have a great voice, but then well, you have to also deliver the goods. Exactly, because uh, I do a lot of different uh, animations and TV adverts and movie trailers and et cetera, et cetera. And they're not all about in a world. Sometimes you got to do high pitch voices sometimes you got to do low sometimes you got to do scary sometimes you got to do happy sometimes you got to do kid kid friendly sometimes you just got to scare the a lot of people so (laughs) it's a lot of different things i got to do incorporate into my good old cavity here 
Yeah, right. Uh, you've done sound effects for video games, so you can obviously, like, mm -hmm. there's a huge range with your voice. You can change it uh, as you need to. Can you give us a bit of an example of sort of how lo low or how high you can actually go? Oh, I can go down there and I can go, Hi, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? Hiding? What's up? So sometimes you've got animations to do and you really do have to show off your skills, your wide range, because if you had just one range, I wouldn't last five minutes, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, think we, oh, sorry. I think we saw you in the, in the coming up there, you did Space Jam, which was an entirely different mm. sound. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I forget now. It's, it's, it's that typical Space Jam. Yeah. Or you can go Space Jam or Space Jam. It yeah. depends on what the, all the pictures in the background are, et cetera, et cetera, you know. But, uh, yeah, I get a lot of direction. And sometimes I do screw it up as well, and it's like, no red, you've overdone it. No red, pull it back. No red, a bit more. You know, just like any other voice artist. I am completely and absolutely gutted that my <laughs> highest high is like, my lowest low is like your highest high. Yeah. That's uh, well, it. you know, you got to eat your green like that sun, all the time. That's what I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody said to you, how do you, how do you get your voice so low? And I said to you, you got to drink whiskey and mix it with sand. And I swear to God, he tried it. <laughs> he did. And I said, are you stupid? But yeah, no, it, it's just still, how it is. Red, do you still have to audition for a movie trailer voice? Or do most of the directors or producers know you, know your voice and have you on speed dial? Well, I've, got, I've been here for 26 years doing this. So a lot of folks say, yeah, let's go to Red. And sometimes a, a producer doesn't want that typical in a world voice. They want that gravitas, but they want something different. So I'll, I'll queue up and I'll audition. The auditions are usually funny because you have guys and they say, oh, I know who he is. So they'll say to me, hi, Red, how you doing? And everyone's trying to get a deeper voice than mine. And it's like, oh, for crying out loud. Hi, Red, how you doing? And it sounds so false. But yes, I do have to audition occasionally. Uh, now, speaking of directors, tell us what happened when you were recording the promo for Jurassic Park, The Lost World. This is a great story. Oh, Jurassic Park, that was around about 1996, round about there. And uh, I was in a booth in London, um, uh, what do you call it, a studio called Space in Dufour's Place in London, central London. And they had me in there, and it's, it's typical. The music is, dum, and I say, something is coming, dum, something big, dum. And then I heard a voice in my headphones saying, Hey, that's a really cool voice. Not exactly like that, but it was right. I pitched. And so I, I swore at the person thinking that they were messing up my VO. And it turns out it was Steven Spielberg and the whole of the production crew was going, shh, And uh, that's how I met uh, temporarily Steven Spielberg on the telephone. Uh, is it true your vocal cords are insured for more than $18 million? That's the Australian conversion. So do you have to well, insure my, my vocal my vocal cords are insured, but uh, I wouldn't tell anybody. And so certain uh, newspapers said, well, can we put 10 million UK pounds? And I said, you can put whatever you like. So I think they took that as carte blanche to put what they like, and they had permission from me. But 10 million pounds did not come out of my mouth. <laughs> That sounds good nonetheless, you'll take yeah, it. it. Really does. I, I was so excited when I was 13 and whatever happens to boys at 13 happened and my voice broke mm -hmm. and now I'm not excited about that anymore. Great to see you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, such a pleasure. What Thank a you, guys. Thank you, Red. Well, between JobKeeper ending next week and a new industrial relations bill being passed by the Senate, 
updating the definition of casual work, the latest employment rules and regulations can be a little bit hard to get your head around. And if that wasn't enough, Easter public holidays are also on the uh, roster next week. So now's the time for workers and business owners to better understand their rights on the job. Uh, let's get more on this. We're joined by Emma Dawson from EmployShaw. Hi, Emma. Hi, Emma. Hi. Thanks Welcome for to the show. Me. Let's uh, start with this new IR uh, bill that got passed. The main change that we've seen is that how a casual worker is classified. They're now officially classified. So what does that mean for the worker? Yeah, so prior to the IR reform, there was a lot of confusion and uncertainty about what casual employment meant. So with the new changes we've seen with the IR reform, it's provided a lot more clarity surrounding what is a casual worker. So the reform now defines that a casual worker is one that has no firm advanced commitment to continuing or indefinite work. So some of the factors that we're looking to take into consideration is the ability for a business to offer shifts to meet the business requirements, the ability for employees to accept or reject shifts, looking at defining the casual employment at the start of employment, so through casual contracts, and ultimately ensuring that the casual does get a loading, which is in place to compensate for the fact that they're not receiving permanent entitlements. Okay, so under this new bill, what happens after someone has been working as a casual for, for 12 months? Yeah, so with the new changes, what we've seen is that there's now a new legal obligation under the Act that states that if you're a large business with 15 or more employees, there's now a legal obligation to look at the casual workers at their 12-month anniversary. If a pattern of days and hours can be demonstrated six months prior to that anniversary, the business has an obligation to ensure that it offers those casuals the opportunity to convert over to part-time and full-time within 21 days of that That's anniversary. That's a big change. Wow. A big so if a worker says has been working every Tuesday and Thursday, sometimes they may not work those days, but, but generally they work a Tuesday and a Thursday. Yeah. After 12 hours, does that mean, though, that the boss has to offer them then permanent shifts or, or can the casual say no I want to remain casual? If they're a large business with 15 yes. or more employees then yes they do have to offer them the opportunity if that regular pattern is demonstrated. Right. And that would only be for the Tuesday and the Thursday, that doesn't mean they have to then put them on five days a week just for the hours that they have been working. Correct, so okay. if they were doing Tuesday and Thursday yeah. it would be maybe on a more permanent part-time basis. At the same time the you know we cannot force the employee to be a part-time or full-time worker so the employee does have the right to refuse. Remain casual. Yeah, 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 to refuse that conversion. Uh, job JobKeeper is set to end uh, next week. What does that mean for small business, do you think? Yeah, so JobKeeper is looking to end. Uh, with that, it's really important that businesses do have a business strategy in place. Uh, if there are concerns regarding sustaining and maintaining certain job positions within their business, it will be important for business owners to look at consulting with workers regarding any changes that might affect their employment, so changes regarding days, hours, location, um, to ensure that agreement is attained. Mm. The worst case scenario would be situations like redundancy where they can no longer sustain a role but in those circumstances it would be really important to look at fair work obligations and ensure mm. that compliance. Mm. Uh, let's talk about Easter of course next week. What do we need to know about public holidays, public holiday rates? Do all industries get them and do we have the right to ask for Easter off? Yes, so when it comes to public holidays, a uh, really exciting time of the year, it will be important for businesses to cross-check their modern award as every industry is different and there is different penalty rates across those awards. 
Ultimately, if a business is operating on the public holiday, they'll need to ensure that they're passing across those public holiday rates to the employees. If they're closing on the public holiday, they'll need to be looking at those permanent full-time and part-time workers and determining if they were normally rostered to work on that shift. And if they were, then they'll be paid their base rate of pay for the ordinary hours in which they would have worked. Gee, lots to take in there. Emma, thank mm. you for taking us through it all. We appreciate that. Thank Thanks you. Thanks, okay. Emma. Well, she's the Beverly Hills housewife turned international reality megastar. For a decade, Brandy Glanville has been keeping it real on the small screen. Her tell-it-how-it-is attitude winning over a legion of fans and making Brandy one of the most popular stars of the Real Housewife franchise. When the cameras aren't rolling, Brandy continues her outspoken streak on her podcast, where she remains totally and absolutely unfiltered. Brandy Glanville, welcome to the show. Nice to see you. Hi, I don't know where to look. Nice to see you guys. We, we can hardly see like, you. We can hardly see you behind um, the wine glass. Yeah, it's not morning here. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a oh, generous hello. serve. That's what we call in Australia a yes. bucket. Now, you are one of our favourite <laughs> housewives. We love you on this. Do you have any regrets at all from the series? Do, or do you just sit back and laugh at it and drink some Sauvignon Blanc? Uh, you know, honestly... I feel like I don't have regrets, but I can't actually, when I watch it back, I get anxiety because I know it was a hot mess, like a mess. But you know what? It was just me being real. I wasn't like pretending to be someone else. I don't have regrets, but it does like, I'm like, oh, my kids are now seeing this. And, but you know, it is what it is. Like, you can't have regrets in life. When you say you were a hot mess, did you realize you were a hot mess at the time? Oh, heck yes. I was going to say a bad word, but I didn't. Morning show. Um, yeah, no, I did. I was going through a divorce. I I was like trying to figure my life out. You know, it was uh, it was a really hard time for me. And I look back going, gosh, I've come so far. But yeah, you know, I think as long as you're aware, then you're good. Okay. Now, during the lockdown, you didn't stop work on your podcast, Brandy Glanville Unfiltered. Without uh, telling us exactly how unfiltered did you got, how unfiltered did you get? <laughs> well, I always tell it like it is. Um, and my podcast is going on 10 years now, so it's been around for a long time. Um, I just love doing it. I love telling people to F off. I love telling people my opinion. Sorry, my earpiece keeps falling out. I just love just being who I truly am and not like apologizing for things, which sometimes I get the calls where my manager's like, you need to apologize. I'm like, nope. And then I sometimes do. <laughs> On your show, you call yourself an honorary Australian. Yes. Would you ever consider moving down under or you like it just where you are? No, I, I've been to Sydney one time and I was obsessed. I went with my best friend and we were like, oh, my God, first of all, everyone there is beautiful, especially the men, I'm just saying. Um, and we and everyone's drinking and there's no guilt and you, there's no judgment and we're all just wasted at the beach. And it was just great. There's, there's so, of, yes, I would move there. There's plenty of guilt the next day. It's important you know that. Like, uh, now, I your, mean, well, a lot of my friends here are Aussies. 
So yeah. I, like, I feel like I fit in perfectly. I'm like, okay, I, we can talk crap and drink a lot and no one's judging us. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what we do. Now, in your, late, cheers, uh, in your latest episode, you spoke with a t Twitter troll. This was an important conversation. Uh, who said, despite his attacks on you, he thinks you are the realest of the housewives out there. Is it easy to forget the cameras are on you when you're involved in all of that? You know, I've done about 13 um, reality shows at this point. So it, it once you get in, in the beginning, I have like horrible anxiety going in. And then once you kind of find your, your footing and you, you do, you have to forget they're there. You can't, like I was on a show that was 24 hours a day filmed. There was no downtime. So you wow. have to still be yourself. So if you're not completely authentically yourself and you're on one of those shows, People are going to find out exactly who you really are. And I liked it because I'm still the same person. But some of those people were pretending. And I was very glad they got called out. Yeah. Last year, you were probably one of the biggest scandals in Housewives history. This is Denise Richards and yourself came to blows after her sexuality oh was addressed on Can't national you TV. Can you, have you got us? Can you hear me? <sighs> Can you can hear you me? Can you hear me? Because I, I can't can hear you. Oh, I can hear oh, you. Yeah. I can hear no, you. We're just I can hear you ask... now. Oh, good. Because <laughs> we were just about to ask you about the Denise Richards scandal um, of last year. We need to ask, have you kept in touch with Denise? <laughs> uh, well, no. I mean, we've touched in the past. <laughs> Kidding. Um, no, she, <laughs> she and I have not spoken since... Since we haven't seen each other since I told the ladies. So not on the show, not at the reunion, not in person. I've reached out to her um, just over email saying we need to, like, sit and talk, you know. Um, but I have not heard from her or seen her since I said that in Kyle's house that night. Mm. Okay. Well, um, it is lovely to, to, to see you in the flesh. Uh, great catching up. And uh, we love that you, you've got a couple of boys. One of them's off to university. So it's a busy time in your life. So... Thanks for making time for us this morning, Brandy. Of course. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Great chat. Unfiltered. Good fun. Right. Just the way we love it. Well, with the East Coast still in the grips of a flood crisis, experts are warning the weeks of record rainfall, coupled with humid and damp conditions, have provided the perfect breeding ground for mould. From carpets to cabinets, stubborn spores aren't always obvious to the naked eye. So how can you spot his hidden hazards? What are the risks and what can we do to prevent it taking over our homes? For more, we're joined by environmental microbiologist Dr Cameron Jones, live from Melbourne. Hi, Cameron. Good morning. And after the serious flooding we've experienced and are still experiencing, uh, what does the wet weather mean for our homes? And of course, we're talking about those ones who are not directly impacted by the flooding and our heart goes out to them. But for people who have just been sitting you know, in the rain, what does it mean for our homes? Well, when a home gets uh, unexpectedly wet, be that driven by flash flooding or changes to the climate, Obviously, that creates the opportunity for uh, unexpected water damage. So the building and the building envelope takes on moisture. And in a sense, that creates the ideal conditions. It's a little bit like a petri plate. And that can lead to out of control uh, microbial overgrowth of those water damaged building elements. And then that can set up bad indoor air quality and lead to something called sick building syndrome. So it really depends on how much water, what got wet, how long it took to dry out. 
But this issue of adverse indoor air quality is a severe risk from flash flooding. If there is obvious water damage, is the safest bet to sort of rip up the carpet or throw out the couch, if that's even an option for you? Because sometimes that's not an option for people. Well, again, it really depends how long it got wet and whether or not there was any uh, attempt or whether it's even feasible to dry that particular object or material out. And it also depends on the porosity of the underlying material. <coughs> Certainly in the United States, there is a standard that is uh, put out and when people are looking at whether or not to save, retain or remediate or dry out materials, they really have to look at what the probability of success is going to be. And these prescriptive standards say that the best fix is source removal. So when a home does get wet, the ultimate way to fix it is to strip out the water damage and mould affected materials and move forward. But it really does depend on the severity of the water ingress event. Okay, so sometimes mould can be a hidden hazard. Is it possible to sniff it out? Absolutely. And really, if you can't see obvious mould and in the absence of any adverse health symptoms that you might be experiencing, your best option is to determine whether or not there is an odour. And the reason you get odours is that these microbes obviously are feeding on elements of the home and a little bit like a compost heap, they're giving off what are called microbial volatile organic compounds. And essentially that's a smell and that's how they deal and take advantage of the host environment that they find themselves in. So if you smell this, you know that you've got growing or viable mould and that means that there is definitely a problem inside the property. Yuck! Uh, what parts of the home are more prone to mould? Well, again, it depends on how the water got in there. If it is a flooding event or uh, rising floodwaters, it's probably affecting the bottom up of the house, whereas if it's a rain event or a storm event, it may be coming in through the ceiling. So you really need to get to the source of where the water came in. And so if it's from the rain, look up. If it's from rising flood water, look down. So that means that floorboards, under flooring, under tiles, especially if there's composite uh, chipboard flooring, uh, they're really obvious places that you need to look. And of course, in uh, uh, inside wall voids is an especially uh, important area to make sure that any insulation that you have in your home isn't wet because if you dry out the uh, front facing plasterboard that's just one aspect of the problem you yeah. need to make sure that nothing's hidden inside. Yeah any other surprising places we should be checking Cameron? Well, look, definitely you want to be checking subfloors because many people have ductwork that is used for heating and cooling. And so you want to make sure that any of that ductwork under the home is not being uh, infiltrated with water and there's standing water present there. You want to check for roofing insulation. That's just as important as your wall insulation. And if you have a new home undergoing construction, if it is getting significantly water damaged, you want to make sure that those timber framing elements and the truss is not becoming unusually mould affected because that could be a serious problem if it is uh, continued on to have walls oh, yeah. uh, installed in it because you could have a hidden mould problem uh, inside your brand new home and we definitely don't want that. And Cameron you say look in the, the voids uh, behind the walls like how do how do people do without a builder or someone to cut a hole in your wall what, what are you expecting people to do? 
Well, basically, you need to. You may need the services of a inspector or a building inspector, but you can also purchase a. Uh, inexpensive um, water meter in a sense okay. and so you want to determine what the uh, amount of moisture in the plasterboard is making sure that you have some understanding of whether or not there is water trapped deeply inside the wall. Infrared thermal cameras again are an excellent uh, uh, tool in especially to find cold and warm spots in a home. And that's really good for assessing uh, before a flood how your energy efficiency is of the home as well, because that could highlight spots where water could get in. Okay, we're heading into winter, which means, of course, cooler temperatures, possibly more wet weather and indoor heaters. So what steps should we be taking now to prevent mould as we head into the winter months? Well, look, obviously you need to do some sort of audit of your home. You need to, in a sense, forecast what you're going to do if there is an uh, unexpected storm or flood water event. The take-home message is always to improve ventilation because this helps with maintaining good, positive indoor air quality. You want to clear up the clutter, especially any clutter under the house or stored in the attic or roof void. And... If your, if your carpet or flooring does become wet, your best course of action is to dry it as quickly as possible. And again, check, for the, gut, check the guttering, check to make sure that it's not full of debris and uh, be vigilant and monitor your property and forecast what could happen, worst case scenario, if it is flood affected or fire affected for that matter. Okay, so we've listened to what you've said this morning. We want to now go home and remove mould around the house. What do we need to do to protect ourselves, our, our own health? Well, look, you want to, if you are flood water affected, it's probably a really good idea to get a dehumidifier. You want to extract as much water as possible from the airspace, not just the water damage affected surfaces. You should definitely be photographing everything. Again, this concept of being water ready really means that it is important to do a, in a sense, a condition report, even if you own your own property. So you have, uh, uh, you have an understanding of what your property was like before it got wet. Obviously, reduce the humidity to 40 to 50 percent. That's going to be your best uh, method of reducing the probability of the environmental conditions that allow mould to grow out of control. Very interesting uh, and affects so many of us at this point in time. Cameron, appreciate your time today. Thank you. You're welcome. That's it for another episode of the Morning Show podcast. Thanks for listening. And make sure you subscribe so you can listen to the new episodes as soon as they're released into the interwebs. You can find out more on today's interviews at themorningshow.com.au uh, or you can watch the full episodes uh, in full colour on 7 Plus. We hope to see you live and on your telly weekdays straight after sunrise. Until then, bye for now. Bye.